If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. As was alluded to earlier, you may have gotten the subtle hint that we're talking about the name of Jesus. And we're talking about his name and how his name seems to breed both controversy and upset, as well as passion and compulsion. And I want you to see that the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the mission of Jesus brings souls to salvation, incites rulers to indignation, and impassions disciples to determination and persistence. You will see today that despite persecution, souls are saved. You will see that nothing can stop the ministry of Jesus and that Jesus works through people like Peter getting arrested. (laughs) And could it be that he can work through people maybe like us? We are, in fact, closing on a monumental day at the temple. If you've been with me as we've been going through Acts a few weeks ago, we started studying about John and Peter coming to the temple. There was a crippled man by the gate. He wanted alms, but Peter gave him Jesus, and he was healed. Peter used that opportunity to preach about how Jesus heals all people, not only physically, but also in the soul from sins and saves them. So I invite you to stand as we read about the powerful name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 4. If you're able to stand, we're going to read 22 verses. Luke writes, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today... Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I need your help. Holy Spirit, I, I desire to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that each and every person who hears these words would, would see Jesus as he rightly is to be seen. And I pray that each and every person in this room would know you as Lord and Savior. And for those of us who think we may know you, may we grow in grace. May we come to love and serve you better. Father, help us to be like Jesus. Say what it is that you desire and have your way. I pray against the enemy that he would not have any way here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The name of Jesus threads this passage together. I see three general movements surrounding the name of Jesus. First, we see upset by the name. Secondly, we see saved by the name. And then finally, we see compelled by the name. Upset by the name, saved by the name, and compelled by the name. So first, in these first four verses, we read again, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Again, Peter and John healed a man crippled from birth, crippled for over 40 years, never knew a day on his feet. And Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Acts chapter 3, verse 6. The man does. The crowds, they come running. Peter says, it's not our power or piety that healed this man. It is, in fact, Jesus. And then Peter goes on to explain that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the healer of souls, the source of life that heals not only crippled bodies, but crippled souls. He forgives sins. And as Peter is preaching, we must take note of the location and the logistics and the implications. Because consider this. This is in the temple. Peter and John were originally going to the temple like good devout Jews, probably to take part in some prayers that happened around 3 p.m. every day. There are two sacrifices that take place at the temple daily, and this would be the second sacrifice. So they were going to a scheduled church service, to use contemporary terms. But now something big has taken place. And now crowds are amassing, not around the priests, not the proverbial pastors, but around these two men talking about a controversial rabbi who was just executed a few months prior. Talking about 
how that dead rabbi was in fact who was in fact who he said he was. And most of all, he wasn't dead. <laughs> he was alive. He is alive. He is the Messiah and his power is still healing people. He lives. And so, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple, excuse me, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, these Sadducees are primarily part of the Sanhedrin. And this is the exact same official ruling party that executed Jesus. These are CEOs, if you will, of the entire Jewish religion. These are official people who, you know, can remove credentials. They can shut down churches. Uh, they just show that they can execute non-compliant rogue teachers. So they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're bosses, for better or worse. And they're coming for a good reason, because they were mentioned, actually, in Peter's sermon. In Acts 3.17, Peter laid the death of Jesus due to ignorance of his being Messiah at the feet of, quote, your rulers, he says to the Jewish people. So that probably kind of hurts. <laughs> and so the priests in charge of the sacrifices and temple service are joined by the captain of the temple. Kind of the vice president, if you will, the second in command. And also he was basically the commander of the temple police. <laughs> he is security. So you think about the temple in Jerusalem. He's making sure no Gentiles, no non-Jews come in and set up altars or what have you and defile the sanctuary. So the top dog Jewish people, they're coming. They're greatly annoyed. Well, in other words, might be disturbed and they're indignant because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is why they were sad, you see. Okay. I think there's an unwritten rule from the Bible that you have to throw that joke in any sermon you mention them. So... Make no mistake, though, their annoyance, their disturbance, their indignation comes from the disciples proclaiming in Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. Here's what's happening in this group's thinking, I think. We killed Jesus already. <laughs> when is this going to be over? Not again. Come on. Let's be done with him. And it escalates a lot more quickly than it did with Jesus. With Jesus, there was three years. But with Peter and John, here's what happens right away. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The Sanhedrin meets to discuss matters in the morning. It's afternoon. Unfortunate for the disciples, they have to spend a night in prison. Why? Jesus. Upset over the name of Jesus because what was the narrative of the Sanhedrin to get Jesus executed in the first place? They said to Pilate, he's a rebel rabbi leading up a rising. It's going to be a civil war. He's their Messiah, not our Messiah. It's going to be trouble. You need to kill him to stop this. And here are the disciples of Jesus in the temple using that name again. Doing miracles in that name. It's not that they really believe that Jesus is a rebellion leader so much as it takes away their own power. 
Sadducees were filthy rich. And the Sanhedrin oversaw a massive business in the Jewish religion that made them rich. And if this Jesus came along and says, you don't need the temple, you can come to God through me, through my spirit, and my spirit is available to everyone, Jesus is our mediator. And mediator is our middleman. Well, that just robs the entire very concept of priest from the priests. And so these poor priests are actually rich priests because they've made the way to mediate between God and man so corrupt in a lucrative business situation. It's literally the best possible social position they could have under the circumstances. They were powerful people. And Jesus, because He offers true salvation and true connection to God and true forgiveness of sins outside of the power and corruption of the priesthood, that made Jesus an enemy to the priesthood. So they killed Him. Which is very ironic. Because it forever cemented the fact that Jesus is our priest. (laughs) Because His blameless death is the very act, the very sacrifice that we find ultimate forgiveness in. His death becomes the substitutionary atonement, the propitiation, the, the pleasing sacrifice to God so that we don't have to die, but we get to live through His life. And I bring all that up because we have a precedent here that the bad guys often do very bad things that plays right into God's goodness. The very acts of evil can be redeemed and used for God's greatest acts of goodness. So hence we have poor Peter and John are just thrown into jail. And then I like how Luke just happens to mention a by the way, a postscript. Uh, Peter and John are carted off to jail. And oh yeah, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Just a minor detail there. The church is growing. It's up from the 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost. Some would say this is just the men, so you might have upwards of 10,000 souls if we average in women and children. The irony, though, is met with the first persecution over the name of Jesus is unstoppable growth. Unstoppable growth. The words that Peter and John said in the temple that lands them in prison also landed souls in the kingdom of God. Good things from bad situations. This is because despite the fact that the name of Jesus upsets some, it is his name that saves souls and only his name. We read in verses 5 through 12 again. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they sat them in the midst They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. First of all, this is intimidation. 
is what it is to begin with. See, they're getting together all the officials that they can think of. They're getting together all the rulers. How would you feel if you're waiting somewhere in D.C.? And you know, you have Trump, military commanders, Obama, George W. Bush, the Clintons, a few senators, the FBI, the CIA, a few national church leaders, the cabinet. You know, they're all getting together and they call you forward for an interrogation. That's what's happening. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, which was actually a high priest before this time, but he is kind of like how we still call George W. Bush, Mr. President. That's kind of the idea with Annas. And then we have Caiaphas, the current high priest, and then John and Alexander, which would be future high priests, who were all part of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? There's a train somewhere. It was my joke. (laughs) What this is, is trial time, because if it's not obvious to anybody, they know what Peter and John claim they had done this by. It's why they're in their custody. But this is the opportunity for Peter and John to either face the consequences or denounce it. This is, you can choose your words here and make this day go a lot easier for you. Or you can keep spouting off that horrible name we don't want to hear. This is not the first time in Peter's life that he's been brought before a trial on account of association with the name of Jesus. Luke Gilliland read for us out of his own book of the Bible. No, Luke, the book of Luke. About Peter being accused of association with the name of Jesus before. And having read this account in Acts at the beginning of our message, we know it turns out different for Peter this time. And it's at the beginning of verse 8 that we find out why. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the people and elders. Think about this too, that Peter failed and lied in the face of a servant girl accusing him. But here in front of the rulers of the people and the elders, he boldly tells the truth. It reminds me of Proverb 28, verse 1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It's the Holy Spirit. Peter is before rulers and the entire Jewish governing authorities called to account because of the name of Jesus. With the rulers hoping that Peter would cower as he had before in the face of a servant girl. But before the highest Jewish authorities, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We often hear verses like these from the mouth of Jesus as a future from us tense. But we know that they were meant for situations like Peter's facing here. Jesus said once, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so, what does Peter say in this hour? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is about to speak to the gathered authorities. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead here, by him this man is standing before you well. First note that Peter is talking about a good thing that happened. (laughs) Note that the authorities said to Peter in the first place, 
by what power or by what name did you do this? <laughs> Let us define this. <laughs> There's nothing bad, nothing wrong, ugly or unfortunate or taboo about this. We were talking about this in Sunday school because Jesus did a few healings that were a little bit controversial for some reason. The this here is the healing of a crippled man. <laughs> Can't we rejoice about that? Again, it's the same bizarreness as Pharisees getting upset at Jesus healing the crippled hand because it was on a Sabbath. <laughs> How could you? Why did you do this? Why did you give this man healing? Sounds about as absurd to me as why did you give him a million dollars? By what power or what name did you do this? Peter gives a face to this. He elaborates, he defines the words for them. He says, if we are being examined, and examined being the, in the original language, the full force of a judicial investigation. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, right? If that's what's gotten you so riled up, if what we're talking about is that good news, if that's the this we're referring to you, well, here's the answer to their question. Here's the power in the name. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... I'm getting a little bit distracted. Let's go back with verse 10 again. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I feel like this is a double answer. And here's why. I feel like the unspoken answer that Peter is saying is to all these gathered officials, I know why we're here. I know what name you don't want to hear, and I know what answer you don't want me to have. But as offended as you might be at his name, i got to tell you the truth. And then do you hear the details and the explicitness that Peter uses? It's almost as if he's saying, not some random Jesus, but the very Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom we testify as raised, that very man, he's the reason why this man is standing before you well. Whom you crucified. Peter is not sticking it to them, but he's telling the truth. And Peter's going to do the very same thing he's done in every sermon in Acts that we've read so far, when he's laid blame and administered guilt to the very feet of the people he's talking to. He's going to say that salvation is had by no other name but Jesus. And sometimes we need the truth even if it hurts, <laughs> especially if it hurts. And sometimes we need to be struck by that plain truth. See, sometimes you and I need to hear that our sin offends God, that our sin kills God, and our sin drove the very nails in His hands and feet. Our sins, not somebody else's. And the habits that we have that we call bad habits that we dismiss as our human nature the people that we've cheated, the words that we've used to belittle both strangers and loved ones, the gossip that we've done behind their backs, the pain that we've caused by our own actions and our own words. It's not humorous to God. It's not small things. It's not a shrug and then you're forgiven. It's a massive injustice 
It's a horrible breach of righteousness. It's a scathing, monstrous offense to the God who made you, and it killed him. It killed God. And it's not a small kill, it's a crucifixion. It's a painful, long, torturous, suffering death because we've sinned. And that's the truth. And that's the truth for those who receive it among the gathered rulers. Many of them could picture it because they saw it. And Peter is saying, you remember that man dying slowly? That pierced, bleeding mess of meat? You're guilty of that man's death. And that man was and is the Messiah. God's chosen one to save his people. Whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And Peter is talking to theology nuts like me, so he proves his point with Scripture. He again proves that he and John and the disciples, they're just not blowing smoke. But Scripture itself proves the validity that Jesus fits the description. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Peter is reaching back into the Psalms. In a particular psalm about the Messiah to make a proof that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, it's a proof that Jesus himself used. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus giving a parable of wicked tenants or wicked vine dressers. And so we know in that parable, Jesus says that there's an owner of a vineyard, of a vineyard, and he goes away and he leaves it into the control of some wicked tenants. And so when the owner sends people to receive profits from the vineyard, the tenants try to usurp control of the vineyard. And so they just beat each person who comes or they might even kill them until the owner, who is very gracious, who hasn't called the police yet. Why? I don't know. And uh, he says, surely the tenants will listen to my son. Surely if I send my son as a representative of me, They'll see how far it's escalated. They'll relent and they'll do what they know is right. But rather, when the son is coming, the tenants think to themselves, surely if we kill the son, then it's a done deal. It'll definitely be our vineyard forever. And so that's what they do. And Jesus, at this point, according to Matthew, Matthew's record of the story, Jesus leaves it to his hearers to finish the story. Because even lousy sinners understand something about justice. Matthew 21 would would tell us that Jesus asks his hearers, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the hearers say to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. Interesting. But then Jesus convicts them. He says, good idea. You're the wicked tenants. (laughs) He, He connects the parable to the psalm that Peter is talking about. And Matthew would finish out this segment stating, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus has come and he has taken the vineyard 
back from Israel. He said, Israel, your rulers have failed in being the very place where salvation occurs, the place where God's chosen people are to thrive. And so it's being taken and given to a better steward to Christ in his body. And so before the very rulers that Peter is talking to and that Christ talked to, this prophetic psalm has taken place that Christ is the stone that the builders, the stewards, the religious priests, the religious authorities have rejected. But rather than being rejected, Christ becomes the cornerstone that is the foundation that the very church is built on. And there is salvation in no one else, says Peter, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you hear the exclusivity in that? There is no other name, this name of Jesus that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But then do you hear the inclusivity of that? The grace is inclusive. It's being presented to the very men that killed Jesus. Very men like Caiaphas and Annas that may never come to Jesus. So the point is, is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what pain you've caused with your sinning, no matter what injustices you're guilty of, no matter how many sins you have committed, no matter what churches have done to you in the past or churches that have hurt you or have, or have sinned themselves, the fact remains that God is gracious and Jesus Christ alone saves you. While some are upset by the name of Jesus, it is the name of Jesus that saves people. And Peter has guts to do this because he is compelled by the name. We finish out today in verses 13 through 22. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether, the, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So catch the irony in this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So the leaders who called together the entire government and were there to intimidate ended up being the silent ones. And the rulers were the speechless ones, and the ones who are uneducated in common, they were the bold ones. Spirit-inspired boldness, confidence, and courage placed in the heart of a spirit-inspired believer. If you have the outline I've placed, I believe, on your outline a few more times where this shows up in the book of Acts, that the Spirit is inspiring boldness and courage in people. But Paul would connect the boldness that believers have to hope. 
And 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So the, the hope that Paul is referring to is the glory that Christ brings with his kingdom. And now that's very much Christianese language, so I'm going to say it for you. The glory that Christ brings with his kingdom. What does Peter have to lose here? And some of you and I might say his life, the lives of the disciples. But if God wins when we die, period, (laughs) he has nothing to lose here. If God has a plan for Peter's life, God's going to bring that plan to fruition. If God saves people by the proclamation of his gospel, listen, if, if Peter is being led away in chains, as well as John, and they say to the other ten disciples, hey, 2,000 men have just been added. <laughs> Could you take care of that and get some baptisms going? It sounds like that the same day that Peter and John are imprisoned, God saves people with that very same preaching. What does Peter have to lose? No, rather he has hope from the Holy Spirit and he has boldness. The uneducated and common here does not mean that the, these fishermen were rough and tumble, illiterate or unintelligent. It just means that like Jesus, they weren't educated like the rabbis. Instead, the rulers recognized that they had been with Jesus. For the last three years, and since I can't say it better than one of my study Bibles, I'm just going to take a quote right from it. Is it, it is impossible to imagine how much the disciples would have, would have learned from spending three years in a close association with the Son of God, living on earth, listening to him teach, hearing him pray, and watching him interact with the most difficult challenges. They knew Jesus, and in knowing him, they knew much more than all the learned scribes of the Sanhedrin. The disciples were uneducated and untrained like the, like the rabbis, but they knew God through Jesus. And the proof of God's power in them was the miracle before the rulers in the form of a healed man. And rather, for these rulers, rather than lay their proverbial weapons down, rather than accept the fact that here were genuine God followers full of his power and that Jesus is who he says he is, we read the common mode by them carried out throughout all the gospel accounts. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. For better or worse, official leaders often act from the fear of people rather than the fear of God. Notice here that they even accept the fact that it was, quote, a notable sign. And they even said, we cannot deny it. Here's a sign that we can't deny. Wow, that's amazing. But they'd rather have their own power and their own prestige than submit to what is blatantly obvious. And so they justified their actions, not just for their own power and prestige, but maybe they consider it guarding orthodoxy in their minds. They executed Jesus for his claims of being the Messiah, and now they don't want to confess that they're wrong. And so it's not about the sign. It's about Jesus. And they don't want teaching in his name to continue or to spread. 
But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Do you hear Peter's response? I find it so fascinating. I want to tell you about a talk I once had with an atheist friend of mine. He grew up in a house that, as far as I knew, was nominally Catholic. I don't know if it was really church-going or not. But he was invited as a teenager to some teen conference. He was invited two years in a row. And he said the first year he went, it was emotionally invigorating. He said he was hooked on the emotions he felt when the praise songs were sung. He really liked the guest speaker's words. They were amazing and inspiring. So then he said the second time he went a year later, he had a very bad experience. And the speaker's words were very judgmental. He said that this was a few years after 9-11. And so the speaker, I guess, had nothing good to say about Muslims. And that's all he said. I don't know how deeply scathing the speaker's words were. And so he felt very judgmental. And he said he felt no experience in the songs. And so he came to a conclusion that, well, it's always just been emotions. There's no truth to it. Well, I pointed out to him when he told me the story of the irony. I said, you, a science-inspired atheist, have made judgments on religion on bad emotional experiences. While I, a faith-loving, Jesus-loving Christian, base my faith and belief in him on fact, logic, and reasoning more than I do emotions. So does Peter. Peter's reasonings for stating he will ignore the ruler's demands is not religious frenzy and fervor. It's not political reasons. It's not stubbornness. It's not martyrdom. But verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Faith is rooted in reality. It's rooted in eyewitness. Meanwhile, the response of unwilling hearts is this. And when they had further threatened them. (laughs) See, sometimes there is no reasonable argument against plain evidenced faith. The heart of the unbeliever is revealed and that it's not facts on their side. It's just a selfish desire. That's fighting to stay unconvinced, fighting to stay unconvinced. Meanwhile, the name of God compels Peter and John's boldness. And it was well founded because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed is more than 40 years old. Friends, Jesus first church is continuing. And in spite of this persecution, that will get worse as we go along in Acts. But thousands of people were saved because of Peter's message. And the heat on them is subsiding because the people are responding. I want to excite you today, friends. Jesus grows his church. All that we need to do is be willing. (laughs) We just need to open our mouths. We just need to make use of the opportunities that God gives us. God will do the rest. He impresses upon hearts to bring people to him. He has come in the person in the ministry of Jesus and he brings salvation. We just need to speak of what we see in here. See, some will be upset by his name. They might tell you it's a non-belief thing. They have a better wisdom thing. But at the end of the day, I'm convinced it's sadly a selfish desire thing. An unwilling heart because of a selfish heart. Still, we can all be saved by the name of Jesus, that for those who do call upon His name, for those who do profess faith in His name, 
for those who do yield to the power of His name, they are saved. And that this Jesus who can heal crippled men can also heal crippled hearts and save them. It's my prayer that we will all be compelled by His name. That we will have the determination and the fearlessness and the boldness of Peter and John knowing and trusting that Jesus' first church is still an unstoppable ministry. He's still saving souls. He still wins when the day is done. And no matter what comes our way, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, if I'm honest, I had a long, I've had a long month, it seems like. Long season, long year. And if I'm honest, there are many days that I want to get up and would rather sleep in the entire day and not preach and not go to work. But Father, You're so gracious that You work through the tiniest amount of availability. That You are willing and able to work with anybody who comes to You and says, Father, I don't, I don't have a lot, but can you use what I have? And that's where you start. And that's where you want to start. Many of us, perhaps for many, many reasons, many good excuses that we have, that we've even written down because they sound so well, could you just break through all of our excuses? Could you break through like you did with Moses at the burning bush? And just say, I just, I just want you to be obedient. I just want you to say yes. Because that's all you need is a willing heart. And what you can do with a willing heart is beyond anything we can even fathom. Father, I pray for each and every person here that they would have willing hearts. That they would stop giving you excuses. That they would stop blaming the sins that they have committed as reasons why you cannot work with them but rather that they would take full hold of the forgiveness you offer through Jesus, that that was no small matter, but that each and every sin that has been committed and that will be committed is laid on the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who you've given to us. May we accept that completely and say, I know I'm broken and dirty, but I want to work for your kingdom. And that's what you've given us the Holy Spirit for. So, Father, would you help us to do that? As we go about our week, give us those moments to be obedient. Whether it be a person that we know we've needed to talk to and we're seeing them yet again just by some sheer coincidence, which you should tell us that that's not a coincidence. And would you give us the ability to be obedient to you in those moments? Whatever it is, however it comes about, would you help us to be obedient? Because we know that your church is still growing and that it's its unstoppable force in ministry. And help us to be with that. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.